0: I just, I have this memory of a woman who came with her husband. He worked in the mill and she kept saying like, I didn't do anything. I wasn't a part of this. I was, you know, they were working in the mill. I was just here. And then, then later revealed like that she had done food distribution network and like was a huge part of the community support that kept people
1: totally,
2: you know, steel workers will tell you, I think it's that sort of thing that kept them on the picket line.
1: Hi, and welcome to Labor History Today. Today's show comes to us from the Labor Exchange, a podcast put out by the Colorado AFL-CIO. Host Robert Lindgren talked with Zach Werkowitz from History Colorado about Steel City, a new exhibit at the El Pueblo History Museum covering the steel strike in Pueblo, Colorado. Steel City, 1880-2004, to 2004 chronicles a defining period in Pueblo's history, as steelworkers and their families fought for labor rights and held their community together during often desperate times. As one of the museum's core exhibits, Steel City spans more than two decades during which the steel industry, which was foundational to the region's economy, collapsed nationwide, and Pueblo steelworkers initiated a historic labor strike. And, on Labor History in Two...
2: The year was 2006. Eleven Domino's pizza delivery drivers in Pensacola, Florida, formed what is thought to be the first ever union of pizza delivery drivers.
1: I'm Chris Garlock. Here's the show.
3: Come all ye young fellas, so young and so fine. Seek not your fortune in the dark, dreary mind. It will form as a habit and seep in your soul till the stream of your blood runs as black as the coal, where it's dark as a dungeon. Damp as the dew, where the dangers are double and the pleasures are few, where the rain never falls and the sun never shines. It's dark as a dungeon way
0: down in. This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. Our guest today is Zach Workowich with History Colorado. He's a member of Colorado WINS, the State Employees Union, Local 1876, and is the lead developer on a new exhibit at the El Pueblo Museum called Steel City, 1980-2004. to Welcome to the Labor Exchange. Happy to be here. Thank you. Great. Uh, first, we like to start off our shows by getting to know our guests a little more. Tell me a little bit about your personal story and what brought you to the museum.
2: Yeah. Uh, so my name is Zach. I live here in Pueblo. I've been here about 13 and a half years. Um, I actually moved to Colorado, moved to Pueblo with the labor movement. I was an organizer for Colorado Wins for um, many years before I started at the museum and um, building worker power for people at the Colorado mental health Institute in um, colleges around the state and uh, department of corrections. Uh, and that experience like really shaped who I am. Uh, you know, I, I grew up hearing stories from my, my grandpa was an auto worker He built four trucks for 35 years. And um, that was important. Those were important stories. Like, uh, that we heard in our family growing up. Um, and, and that pointed me in the direction of like working in the labor movement. Um, a number of years ago, five or six years ago now, I was laid off from Colorado winds. Um, and this job at the museum, uh, doing community relations is a lot. Uh, you know, it it happened, to be the right thing at the right time. So, um, you know, I work to get the word out about History Colorado's um, programs and events and stories that we're telling to people in communities around the state. Um, and I bring an organizer's perspective to that.
0: Our guest is Zach Workowich with History Colorado. We're talking about the exhibit down in Pueblo called the Steel City, 1980 to 2004. Um, With those dates, the 1980 to 2004, what are some of the key events uh, covered, the history covered by the exhibit? The reason
2: we looked at that era, it's a 25-year, like just a pretty neat um, segment of time. Um, in, In the late 70s, in like 1979, there were, somewhere around 8,000 people working at the mill. And at that time um, they were still, you know, making, um, making steel from coal and iron, uh, you know, smelting it here, um, and rolling out tubes and bars and rails, um, as well as the newer processed electric arc furnace where basically like melting down scrap steel to make their products. Um, so 1980, 8,000 people or so working there. Um, but what was happening in the rest of the world is that, you know, Western Europe and Japan, uh, their steel industries were destroyed during world war II and they were built back, uh, with like modern, much more modern methods. Um, and CFNI I was not as bad as some of the other players in back East, but um basically like the you know the foreign steel was dumped into the domestic market and caused massive disruption to the steel industry. Between 1980 and 1984, the plant went from you know seven or eight thousand people to about nine hundred or a thousand people working there, which a town of a hundred thousand people is devastating, obviously. Uh you know, eight or of the people of the residents of the town working at the mill. Um, And so by the mid 80s, the plant here was employing a fraction of um, what it had been employing five five years or 10 years earlier. Um, But it limped along. Uh, There there was trouble with the pension. Um, It was spun off from... The Crane Corporation, which had owned it previously, was sort of made to go independent, Um, but it was limping along. By the early '90s, well, in in the fall of 1991, CFNI declared bankruptcy, which was, uh, you know, a terrifying prospect here, uh, even though the mill employed a fraction of what of the people that had been working there. Those were still like union jobs, you know, good wages and benefits and pensions. Uh, And and aside from the wages alone, the pensioners um, have a really significant portion of the population in Southern Colorado. So the company declared bankruptcy. But luckily, um, you know, through community efforts and, and concessions from the workforce eventually, like it was uh, bought by Oregon Steel, uh, headquartered in Portland. They had other steel mills along the West Coast, um, and the workforce, the, the the two unions there, signed a five year contract with Oregon Steel to uh, keep the keep the mill running. Um, what was um, certainly known at the time, but not talked about in the, in the newspaper for sure, was uh, Oregon Steel's record of breaking its unions. They broke unions in, I think in Portland and Napa in the 1980s. Um, and they came when that five-year contract was up, they came, that was their plan here, was to break the union here in Pueblo. Um, but the steelworkers here in the community, like we're not gonna let that happen. Um, they voted to go on strike in ni- in October of 97. Um, and then, you know, with some flurry of like back and forth and some intricacies of, in, in some esoteric labor law, like it ended up, uh, it moved from a, a strike to, uh, but basically they were on strike for seven years after that, um,
0: yeah and I I get you're struggling a little bit explaining some of the intricacies because I've dug pretty deep into this and it's it's it for our listeners it's it's fairly complicated because uh there's arguments between the company and the union over whether this is an economic or non-economic strike there's also uh, even more complexity than that but the basic uh, uh underlying thing is that is that uh you know, reactions through the courts or other means, um, you know, moved what was happening because of the, the way the legal system works around labor. It's incredibly complicated. I think it'll be a little too hard for me to even, you know, come off and summarize this on a side sidebar. Um, well, but, but yeah,
2: the sort of gist is that, um, you know, by December, the union, the, the two unions offered to come back to work. And the company said, No, we've replaced you with scams. Uh, and and that's where the whole decision hinged, is and that's what you mean is like, is it an economic strike or a working conditions or unfair labor practice strike? Um, and so the but the workforce here carried on for seven years, um, and that meant you know picket lines at the at the gates. It meant rallying support from neighbors and businesses around the community. And also, really significantly, steelworkers led really a a new phase in um, sort of not just grassroots unionism, but grassroots um, organizing um, nationwide. Steelworkers from Pueblo, um, Joel Buchanan is one, they ended up going all over the country um, and eventually targeting not just Oregon Steel, but Wells Fargo, just like the company credit card. Um, to put economic pressure on the company. Uh, and through you know, numerous conversations and presentations at meetings and all sorts of um, grassroots tactics got uh, other union allies, universities, municipalities to withdraw tens of billions, I think 14 billion dollars or something from Wells Fargo um, as economic sanctions against, um, against Oregon steel and eventually, uh, you know, there's a lot more to say about all of that, but in 2004, the company came back to the table. There was a court order, uh, again, like kind of, uh, esoteric, uh, court maneuverings and legal maneuverings. Um, but the, the steel workers here, won the biggest back pay in labor history to that time, um.
0: And kept their union. I think that's it really, union, really, that was, this was an attempt to 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 destroy that union. You, you mentioned Joel Buchanan. Can you speak a little bit to the people that are highlighted in the exhibit and just some of the background there?
2: Yeah, really key to so much of the work that History Colorado does is collecting in communities. Um, and so one of the ways that we researched you know this is really recent research there's not been many books written I think maybe no books written about this strike in particular Um, so we had to look other way other places for getting the sources for this Um, so we conducted a number of oral history interviews with steel workers and community members Um, Joel Buchanan was one of those he had started at the at the mill in in 1970 um, and he was involved with the union and uh, the story he told us was that shortly before they went on strike he was injured on the job um, and still like made his uh, you know fulfilled his duties on the picket line but he was one who was recruited to go around the country and I think he went to Houston and Portland and Seattle and San Francisco and spent years on the road with the road warriors, you know, and steel workers.
0: Yeah. Those, those the road, other... road warriors was the, the name for the group that was running around for this, um, trying to get people to explain to people why they needed to take their money out of Wells Fargo to support the steel workers in Pueblo.
2: Exactly. That's right. Yeah. Some of the other folks we talked to, um, Georgina Daffin was a steel worker um, who endured the strike and went back to work afterwards. Arthur Yarbrough is, Currently, this is a, kind of an interesting story. One of the things that steelworkers, one of the like legal maneuverings um, that they were able to uh, accomplish during their strike was to be eligible for unemployment benefits. And then also through that to be eligible for retraining benefits. And so Arthur Yarbrough was a steelworker, um, 20 years experience or something at the mill. Um, and when they went out on strike, eventually the union sent him to, I don't know if it was the union or if it was the state sort of workforce um, benefits, but um, he ended up becoming a, getting, earning a master's in social work. He's currently a social worker um, and a member of Colorado Winds, my local. Um, and then some of the other folks we talked to as well, um, we talked to a city manager, Jim Munch, who is, he was a, um, maybe not a city manager at the time, a city planner in um, the 1980s and 1990s helped us, told us about how, uh, about the impacts of those massive layoffs. Like what were the ripple effects through the community? Um, We talked with Bernie Zerker, who is the contractor who kind of got this ball rolling with um, talking about keeping the plant, uh, the company afloat. In the early '90s, and then, luckily, the community here is so generous with not just sharing stories but also sharing photographs. We got dozens or hundreds, maybe, of photos from the period um, that are you know, many of them on display. And then, the another key element of our research, because again, there's not a ton of um, academic sources at this point for such recent history, but um, the Pueblo Library uh, really generously shared you know, uh, archives of the Pue- Pueblo Chieftain, um, which, you know, the chieftain had a uh, a line. like they uh, were not an impartial observer, I would say. Um, but it was an interesting it was an interesting view at like the story that was being told to the community by the paper
0: um when I period. know I had at one point read through some of the archives at the local and it was interesting because of course they they for legal reasons were uh, were archiving every every article in the Oregon paper and the Denver paper and the Pueblo paper and I think you're right, we could just say it's Pueblo Chieftain, you know uh, it, it might be revealed by the the name that they keep, but they have a conservative bent definitely uh, during this time especially they were not on the side of the workers. Hey, can you talk about some of the tactics uh, that were used? I know I had heard some stories about them going going to Oregon and people chaining themselves, anything like that. Do you, you know, Can you talk a little about the tactics?
2: Yeah, one of the oral histories we conducted was with Lynn Bezek, um, who is the wife of a steel worker. She went to Oregon. Uh, she went to Portland in 98, 99. Um, and yeah, the, a number of women, they called themselves women of steel, went to Oregon and, and chained themselves to the company headquarters until they were arrested. Uh, Joel, uh, and, and Lynn both tell about those in their oral histories, which I should mention they're available on our SoundCloud. Um, you can listen to all of the oral histories we collected at I think it's soundcloud.com slash history, Colorado. There's a steel city playlist there with a number of oral histories. Um, Yeah. So that was one of the tactics. Joel talked about how they arranged um, at that time for the fire department, you know, union firefighters at the time in Portland. Um, They pre-arranged you let us know how long you need to be in there. And then we'll let the cops in to haul you out um, after you've made your statement. Um, we also, you know, talked with, uh, learned at a, at a SOAR meeting, I think, the Steelworkers Retirees chapter. Um, Joel's girlfriend at the time uh, had a was the person carrying the money for bail. Uh, but she, she was proud of that. And it was an interesting thing to hear. Um, Yeah, they, you know, they ended up getting support from, from so many uh, people and organizations around the country. I'm trying to think of some of the other stories.
0: Yeah, Well, and I think the civil disobedience is a part of this because these corporate campaigns, really, it's about uh, understanding the company, where it's going, where you have leverage points to make a difference. And that's getting like this, where they get people uh, tied to Wells Fargo to, you know, take notice on that we're talking with Zach Workowich, uh with the History Colorado. We're talking about the Steel City 1980 to 2004 exhibit at the El Pueblo Museum. If you haven't gone, the El Pueblo Museum is great. It's affordable. And if you have a History Colorado Pass, you can visit all of the regional museums, not just that main one downtown in Denver. Um, so the Colorado AFL-CIO's earliest incarnation was founded in Pueblo um, on May Day. Uh, 1896. Um, the Southern Colorado Labor Council still holds that as their founding date. What do you think unions mean to Pueblo? Uh,
2: first of all, I—that's news to me. Uh, really cool information to hear. I wonder where it was. I, if you'll indulge me for a second to go on a bit of a tangent, I wonder where it was incorporated. Um, where I sit right now is two blocks away from the Mineral Palace Park which was once home to the Colorado mineral palace Um, and a little bit of side promotion, I guess we're opening an exhibit on the Colorado mineral palace, which was this giant sort of legendary uh, building that once stood in this neighborhood and has was torn down and sort of descended into myth and urban legend.
0: Yeah, well and there's like there's like years. massive men made of and king coal was king stolen Cole, and
2: yeah, silver like, queen. Yeah madness. Um but I know the AFL um like in the early 20th century had a number of conventions and meetings there. Um so I wonder if uh if that's where the Colorado AFL CIO was incorporated.
0: Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know what other stories need to be told um let's think you know through you know with you're in uh, southern colorado and pueblo um you know you talked about mineral palace park i would love to to know more about that i would love to like travel back in time and see it it was so such a strange yeah myth is the thing it reminds me of like the coliseum right like that's how i feel if like the after you know king cole's been stolen or whatever there's all that history it's sort of like you know half derelict but like also still used for things like i'm just Uh the context isn't there it's it's
2: fascinating and that exhibit opens this friday the 9th um so yeah come and see it
0: yeah um
2: the i would say some of the stories that labor history specifically that need to be that haven't been told as much um in southern colorado I think the 1927 strike in the coal fields, the, the Wobblies, um, is un- undertold, um, but fascinating. Uh, really, the history of all of this is still being written, but especially, I think, the, the teacher strikes of 2018. Um, like, I, I think those are potentially some really interesting stories as the um, a picture of education and and teacher activism unfolds. Um, will be interesting to follow.
0: Yeah, I appreciate you taking, uh, you know, a longer view and, and starting to tell some of these stories, because I think to some folks like me, like I'm, you know, turn going to turn 40, uh, you know, the Dang. 1980s and 90s. I know, man, it's we've known each other a long time, folks, too, just for our <laughs> listeners. So um, but, you know, just just seeing it doesn't seem so far to me, but like that's that time frame where if we're not, you know, gathering that history, it will be lost. There will be stories we will not know if we don't uh, do right. that. Yeah. yeah. And I'm actually remembering back, I came down for one of your oral history collections and um, one of your staffers, I believe, is it Jose? Yeah. Um, What's his last name? Ortega. So Jose Arteaga, wonderful staffer, runs uh, this—you know—really interesting way of like pulling stories out of the community and just sitting there. But I just—I have this memory of a woman who came with her husband. He worked in the mill, and she kept saying, "Like, I didn't do anything. I wasn't a part of this. I was—you know—they were working in the mill. I was just here." And then, then later revealed, like, that she had done food distribution network and like was a huge part of the community support that kept people totally.
2: Yeah. Well, it's that sort of thing that. Uh, you know, steelworkers will tell you, I think, that it's that sort of thing that kept them on the picket line. Like, there was, um, there was plenty of incentive to keep showing up, but, like, part of the thing that, kept him, that got them out there, you know, six in the morning in a historic blizzard in October of 97 was that, like, you know, Auntie Bev from across the street from the mill was out there handing out burritos and hamburgers to everybody on the picket line. She, was, she owns a restaurant in Bessemer still, just moved uh, just before the pandemic, a little ways away from the mill, but it had for 20 years been her, the front of her restaurant faces the mill, right by the Indiana gate, I guess. Um, she opened it in the summer of 1997. And so she's so sweet and her food is so good, you should go, um, but she we asked her you know so many steel workers mentioned like auntie bev was out there every day handing out burritos and hamburgers and so we we tried to we we sat down with her to ask her about you know her memories of the strike and why did she do it and and what kept her going and really it, it um she what she told us was that you know we asked how many how many hamburgers did you give out and she said I don't have any idea I didn't even keep track uh, just knew that the Lord would provide and this brand new restaurant kept going but and the community I think has paid her back like um, she's still making really good burritos uh, really excellent uh, stuff so
0: well, and I think uh, having lived in Pueblo myself too, that does just feel very familiar to me, the um, selflessness that you see amongst people to help each other. And I, I do think that was a big part of the, the of this whole story, 1980 to 2004 was like, it, it's, you know, yes, it's the union, but it was really how did the community survive and how did it to go to get to a place where we still have great union jobs? We're still building US-made American steel that we can use in our projects here locally. And that was to me, you know, a testament to the community coming together um, along with just some really bright people working really hard tirelessly to, to do something to make sure this didn't just get uh, swept under the rug. Like so many things do.
2: That's right. Yeah. It's um, having been an organizer, you know, I still, I would say, consider myself an organizer still by vocation it's a wonder to me how they kept the energy going for seven years and i guess at a certain point like it it gains a momentum of its own and the um but obviously like the organizing work that was done up to the strike up to walking out and then through and the the amount of like solidarity among the workforce the uh, uh, I guess there's just not words for it probably, but, um, and, and then really like the solidarity and support from their neighbors and friends and business owners. Like it took everybody, I guess.
1: Yeah,
0: it really did. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us today and sharing about this uh, important exhibit down at the El Pueblo Museum.
2: Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me on to talk about these stories. And yeah, thank you.
0: This has been the Labor Exchange on KGNU Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. Our guest today is Zach Workwich, Community Relations Director for History Colorado. We've been discussing a new exhibit at the El Pueblo Museum in Pueblo, Colorado, called Steel City, 1980-2004. to The Labor Exchange is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find more great radio at laborradionetwork.org. Labor Exchange would like to wish you a very happy Labor Day, and we want to recognize that even though this is a holiday for workers, many of you have worked hard today, and we thank you for it. Uh, We'll end with a short audio clip from a worker at Brewing Market in Lafayette speaking at a rally this last Sunday supporting their effort to unionize. We'd also like to thank the Boulder Valley Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Our music this episode has been Dark as a Dungeon by Merle Travis, performed this past Sunday there by Pete Wernick.
2: The relationships that we've formed and the solidarity we're showing each other and the imagination that we have for a better world were unstoppable. So thank you so much.
3: Come all ye young fellas, so young and so fine. Seek not your fortune in the dark, dreary mind It will form as a habit and seep in your soul. Till the stream of your blood runs as black as the coal. Where it's dark as a dungeon. Damp as the dew, where the dangers are double and the pleasures are few, where the rain never falls and the sun never shines. It's dark as a dungeon way down in the mine.
1: That'll do it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. You can subscribe to LHT on your favorite podcast app. Even better, if you like what you hear, and we sure hope you do, please like it in your podcast app, pass it along, and leave a review. That really helps folks to find the show. Labor History in Two is a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Special thanks this week to The Labor Exchange, a podcast put out by the Colorado AFL-CIO. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pazak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.